What if you were able to sit down for lunch with some of the greatest leaders in the world? What would you ask? What would they say? Welcome to the Lynch with a Leader podcast, where you're invited to join us in learning the spiritual principles behind big success. Here's your host, Mike Lynch. Welcome to episode 46 of the Lynch with a Leader podcast, where we sit down with some of America's greatest leaders and find out how they have led with their faith out in front. If I've never met you before, my name is Mike Lynch, and it's an honor to be on this leadership journey with you, is we're all seeking to be the leaders that we've been created to be in the space and the place that God has put us. Today's guest is a guy who is using his space and using his place to be one of the leading experts on leadership that's out there. I've had the privilege of knowing Brian Dodd for over 20 years as a personal friend. We served alongside each other as he attended North Star Church. He was on our our board, and I got to be around him in that atmosphere. I've gotten to be around him in, in his role at Enjoy Stewardship as the Director of New Ministry Relationships for Enjoy Stewardship Solutions. I watched Brian when Brian was a nobody. And his mind and his acumen for leadership was always there. And he just began to put together information and he began to uh, disseminate what everybody else was doing, put it in uh, a blog format on Brian.onleadership. And he's become one of the most read blogs in the country. He is a go-to for every pastor and he is a go-to for every leader. You are going to love our time together with Brian Dodd. He is so well-versed. His mind is so uh, vast. He has authored, most recently, Timeless 10 Enduring Practices of Apex Leaders, where he talks about what leaders are doing that make them unique. He is one of the greatest leadership minds in the marketplace today. And I'm telling you, you are going to love Brian. You're going to want something to take notes with. I'm telling you, he's going to give you numbers. He's going to give you a list. So I want you to pull up a chair and I want you to listen in to a live interview that I got to record with my good friend, Brian Dodd. Well, Brian, welcome to the very first live Lynch with a Leader, where we're sitting down face-to-face for this interview. Exactly. Well, I am thrilled to be here. This is my bucket list is complete. I am now on Lynch with the Leader, and to be the first live guest in your palatial studio is is an honor. I'm just hoping the ladder on the wall behind you doesn't <laughs> fall and hit you in the head, so that's what I'm hopeful for. I think we both got insurance, so we're, we're good just in case. Jamie so. wouldn't agree with that. But um, So as we think about leadership, I go back to our early days when I got to know you. You were serving on our management team mm-hmm. here at North Star. And man, I remember, I I can't even count how many Cracker Barrel conversations we had early in the morning talking about leadership. And now you're known as a leadership guy, one of the most read artists and and writers out there, incredible books you're producing. Go back to North Cobb High School. You grew up really, really close to where we're sitting right now. Right. Go back to North Cobb High School and tell me a little bit about Brian Dodd when he was there. Yeah, just, uh, you know, for the listeners uh, who don't live in this general area, I grew up probably 10-minute walk from here, went to high school probably at Tiger Woods Drive from here, and uh, so went to North Cobb High School, graduated in 1984. And when I think back to me in high school— Uh, I was a good student and all that kind of stuff. Uh, But in terms of who I was as a person, I would not have classified myself, quote unquote, as a leader at all. You know, I back then, obviously, in the early 80s, leadership was not a buzzword like it is today. It was being popular. That Mm -hmm. was the term. And here's what I remember about them, about then. My graduating class was about 335 people, which back in 84 was real good size. And um, half are guys, half are girls. And I want a senior superlative, which a lot of people would be impressed with, but it was wittiest, believe mm. it or not. And here, when I look back on that, here's what I think. I think that the class clown of all the guys in our school, so let's say half of them, 165, 170 guys, 
I was the one who craved attention the most. Mm. That I was, it's not any kind, because my daughter's impressed by it, but I look at it and I'm like, <laughs> honey, you don't, you don't know what was going on inside the person who had to win that award. And I would say out of 335 people, if you were to pick, you know, start going in order of who would one day wind up on the Lynch with the Leader podcast, you'd be in the 200s before you got to me. Wow. And so I was saved in 1980. So, I mean, so to, you know, church, church word justification, I was justified in August of 1980. The sanctification, the salvation that you work out in the discipleship and the maturity, that was a long process. Mm. You know, I wasn't getting reinforcement on that at home. I was the only, you know, I was going to church by myself and, you know, and that kind of thing. So the Brian Dodd in, night, in the 80s, um, he was a young guy just trying to find his way mm. and just trying to find his place in the world and find his voice and doing whatever he could to get it. And, and that was, that was kind of how I started out back then. You know, it's so funny, Brian, to hear you say that because I think so many people, especially young college, late high school, college, early twenties go, man, I, I wasn't that I wasn't ever a great leader. So I, I mean, that's really probably never going to be who I am. So so when I, you graduate North Cobb, mm-hmm. you go to college, tell a little bit about your college experience. Yeah, I just went to Kennesaw, went in my hometown, never had any aspirations of going anywhere else, didn't want to go to UGA or Tech or anywhere. The only other place that I even considered was Syracuse because they turned out the, the best sportscasters. <laughs> and my family couldn't afford Syracuse. So mm-hmm. I just stayed at home, lived at home, Drove ten minutes to Kennesaw College, so that was my college. Experience. And you graduated with what degree? And oh, what did you start doing when you graduated? I studied economics because I was in the in the Reagan Reaganomics era. And to be honest, this sounds terrible. I've never used any of that in my entire <laughs> life. Uh, you know, it's just it's funny how that worked out. the The thing about that period in my life that kind of massively impacted where I am today and put me on that trajectory. So my family was beyond dysfunctional. I mean, it was a mess, you know, but it was interesting. My mom started making us go to church when dad left, when, when we were 12, Ackworth United Methodist Church, right up the road. And so I got saved two years later, 1980, right before I went into high school. And here's the thing that I saw a picture of what could be. I saw Ward and June Cleaver. I saw the happy wife and the happy husband and the three kids and the dog and the white picket fence. I wanted that so bad I could taste it. And so I've gotten asked a lot, you know, because, you know, they'll they'll see my background and go, well, how come you didn't become a statistic? How come mm-hmm. you've only had one wife? And how come you kept going to church after high school and college? And And here's the thing. What they want, what they had, those people were so attractive to me that I don't know how I can get all of that, but I want to marry a beautiful, godly young lady, and I want to have godly kids, and I want to have a dog, and I want to have a picket fence, and I want to have an eight-to-five job, and that's the life I want. And so they just kind of really painted a picture of of what I wanted. And that really was kind of the anchor that kind of carried me really into my early 20s. So you get out of college, you get a job. Was it something that you loved when you started working? So you get your degree, you start in the working world. Did you did you get up every day and go, man, this is the greatest thing. I'm going to kill it. Describe a little bit about those early working years for you. Yeah, early working years, really bivocational youth ministry and working for public utilities in call centers. And, you know, back then on the call center side of things, um, people worked there for 40 or 50 years. I mean, you didn't get promoted unless somebody retired or passed away. So I kind of had this goal to be a supervisor by the time I was 30. Mm. You know, I'd kind of set that in place. And that happened. I, I reached it at 29, and I was so proud and that kind of thing. But my heart really was in church leadership because it was church leadership that had made the difference in my life. And I 
and I appreciate the working world, and obviously the large majority of people are called to the marketplace. Mm-hmm. Um, but for me personally, um, selling soap software and widgets and goods and services and things like that, that was great, and it's necessary to carry on a functioning society. And you can have tremendous impact if you deliver great customer service and care about people and those kind of things. But for me personally, that just paled in comparison that you could spend your time investing in people and their life could be changed for eternity. Mm. And marriages could be restored and kids could be given a hope in a future and addictions could be broken and relationships could be restored and people could have meaning and purpose and hope. And I was just so attracted to that and just thought if I've got to pick between one or the other, I just want something with eternal value over just trying to make shareholder value great and help my boss's kid get into a good school, you know. And I know in the book, in your in your book, Apex Leadership, you talk about a defining moment that you went through, a, a time where you had a choice of who you were going to become. Tell everybody a little bit about that experience okay. for you. Are you you're referring to the the ropes course? The ropes course. Okay. So coming up, um, my parents set in place a kind of minimum standard of academic excellence. Well, I realized I didn't have to give my very best to hit that. So I would do just enough to make them happy and just enough to get into Kennesaw, you know, because I had no interest mm-hmm. in going to Tech or Emory or anything like that. So I did just enough to get that. Okay, well, then at work, I discovered, you know what? A lot of people in this world are lazy. If I just show up five or 10 minutes early and stay five or 10 minutes late, I'm kind of ahead of about 80% of the workforce. You know, so I just started doing just enough to stay in that, you know, upper tier. And then at church, I mean, my heavens, at church, if you just show up and volunteer and do anything, the, tw- the 2080 rule, I'm better than 80% of the people if I even show up. That's right. Okay. And modern day attendance where you're going like 1.3 times out of every four Sundays. Heck, if I'm here half the time and watch online a third week, I'm ahead of 80% of the people. So there was this always this bare minimum where I didn't give my best. I did just enough to get by. Well, by that time, I'm in my 30s, early 30s, and I've got a wife and I've got a daughter and I'm trying to earn a living and provide for them. And it was reaching a point in my life that getting by was no longer getting by. Mm. I was now in the workforce. There were people who were actually committed to excellence, that this meant something to them, or they had an imbalanced life. They didn't care about their family. They were all about their career, so they were in 100%. And so I also heard some teaching at the time about Malachi chapter 1. And Malachi chapter 1, that's the passage where God, through the prophet Malachi, really gets on the priest because they're offering diseased and blemished animals for sacrifice. They weren't offering their best. And God tells them, I would rather you shut the temple doors than to offer that to me. Mm. So I was getting taught that. So I'm at the ropes course, Berry College. Uh, Jay McAnally was the men's pastor. So we're up there. We're up there. There's probably about 300 men at this men's retreat. And it's late one night. It's after midnight. And I'm in a group of about 30 people. And what we were to do, we were to scale a tree about 30 feet, harness up and just swing back and forth and then come back down. And there's like 30 of us that are having to get through the through the line. And so it comes my turn. Now it's after midnight. We're exhausted. We're tired. We just want to go back to the cabin and go to bed. I get up about 20 feet. And I make some wisecrack joke, once again, the wittiest, make some wisecrack joke about having a wife and a mortgage and I'm not doing this. And Mm -hmm. there's a couple of giggles and I come back down and move on. Nobody cares because they're just like, let's get the 30 through. Matter of fact, if 15 of you want to do what Brian did, we're all going to be happy, you know. But I remember when I came back down, I'll never forget it. I'm standing there in the dark in the Georgia mountains. And watching these guys go up and down, and nobody knows it, but God told me at that moment, he goes, Brian, this represents your entire life. Wow. You've gone 20 feet your entire life, and you've never gone the final 10 feet. You've done nothing but offer me blemish lambs your entire life. Even when I was teaching youth and a youth minister, I'd start preparing late on a Saturday night. As long as you're entertaining for an hour and you love the kids, they'll yep. come back the next week. So I didn't. I, I was not giving them my best. 
and I made a decision that night that there'll be things I'll be good at. There'll be things I'll fail at. You know, some things will go great. Some things won't. But I'll never not give my very best again. Mm. And, you know, the thing about that is I've pretty much lived up to that promise since standing there in the Georgia mountains. And obviously there's been some great blessings and rewards and benefits from that. But when I look at that, here's what I always go, I think through. I wasted 32 years of my life. And honestly, Mike, when I get to heaven and the first 32 years of my life, Actually, I became a Christian at 14. So Mm -hmm. let's say 18 years of my Christian life of leading, of youth ministering, of CWT and discipleship training and all this kind of stuff. If it ain't going to burn up as haywood and stubble because I offered up blemished lambs, Mm -hmm. I never gave God my very best. So I at least want to live to 65 so I don't have to say I've wasted half my life. You know, I could at (laughs) least get over that hurdle. But yeah, that was a defining moment. And honestly, that ropes course, when people are making ropes courses, you know, they wanted to teach you life lessons and that's the image of it. Well, it worked on me. Wow. And I'll never, that, that, I've had several defining moments in my life, but that ropes course at Berry College, North Star Men's Retreat was one of the defining moments of my life. Where would you be if that hadn't happened? Where would you be if you'd have stood there because I think where a lot of people find themselves, God speaks to them. They know, but they still keep it. doing what they've done for so long is just easier and it's more comfortable. Where would Brian Dodd be if you hadn't made that change? Honestly, I, I, I don't want this to sound the way it's going to come out. I just hope your listeners can yeah. hear my heart on this. I think I'd just be an average nondescript Joe. You know, not really accomplishing nothing in the world, not doing anything significant. And people can determine significance, certainly on a sliding scale. But in terms of me living out and becoming everything God wanted me to be as a leader, as a man, as a husband, a father, a friend, a church attender, any of that, it'd be nowhere near where where I'm at today and I'm not nearly where I need to be. Yeah. But if I would not have done that, I wouldn't even be where I am. What would you say to to a man or a lady that's listening right now and they find themselves there? Yeah. And I think we all know it. I know the seasons I've finished 20 feet short. Yeah. I know those seasons. What would you say to them to encourage them to finish those next 20 feet in whatever piece of life that is? Yeah. The fruit's always at the end of the tree. Um, That, or the fruits at the end of the branch. That's a better way to put it. Fruits at the end of the branch. Um, The the remaining 20 feet is where the blessing is at. Mm. Anybody. the, The difference between ordinary and extraordinary is just a little extra. Anybody can go 20 feet. The, what God wants to do miraculously in your life is that extra 10 feet that you've got to push yourself, that you've got to stretch yourself, that you've got to get uncomfortable, that you've got to take a little risk, uh, you got to pay a little price. But the benefit of all of that is certainly better than a life of ease and comfort. Mm. That's so good. So. so now you're in this leadership world and you've become a real thought leader. What fascinates you about leadership? What is it about leadership? We were talking even earlier about the early days with the Defining Moment CDs that used to come in the mail and the yeah. Enjoy Life Club. What what fascinates you about leadership? Well, I'm a product of great Christian leadership. You know, when I think about my life, right after I became a Christian in 1980, I had a Sunday school teacher uh, by the name of Linus Black. And Linus's son, Chuck Black, was one of my best friends. But I'd been a Christian maybe a couple weeks and Linus goes, hey, Brian, a bunch of us are going to be praying for Pastor Jim. Why don't you join us? Well, I, I didn't know it in the, these terms back then, but the power of influence, Mr. Black was asking me, mm-hmm. so, okay, let you know, I'll do it. Um, so we get in the room, and the only people in there are Pastor Jim, me, and Mr. Black. That's all these people, you know, was wow. the three of us. So Mr. Black prays first. Now, remember, I have zero biblical background. I know I'm saved, and I know why I'm saved, and I know there's a heaven and a hell, and relationship with Jesus is the difference between the two, and I I know the fundamentals. I don't even know there's an Old New Testament. I mean, I know nothing. 
And so I just repeat everything Mr. Black says. <laughs> but here, looking back, you can never, I always say this, you cannot connect the dots in the present or looking forward. You can only connect them looking back. That moment was the moment that God put me on a trajectory that I would spend the rest of my life serving church leaders. That that moment. And here and here's the here's the thing. I uh I do capital campaigns for a living yep. with Enjoy Stewardship Solutions. So that's my daytime job. Yep. And I was talking to somebody yesterday and they were talking about the, you know, the challenges of raising funds and that kind of thing. And I said, look, I said, for me, nothing's better than a capital campaign. Mm-hmm. Love them. Absolutely love them. They look at me like I got a couple of heads. <laughs> and I go, well, let me tell you why. Number one, there's vision, there's communication, there's vision construction, there's everything you've got to do to put together to be an effective communicator. Then you got to build a team to multiply your mission vision. You've got to equip them so you've got the whole team building aspect. And then you've got stuff like calling people to commitment and sacrifice and stepping outside of themselves and focusing on a story bigger than what their own individual mm-hmm. story is. And then you've got to do effective follow through. And then these projects have to actually be realized and completed. And so there's nothing more leadership intensive than that. Mm-hmm. And here's the thing, too. In ministry, pretty much everything's subjective. I mean, good sermon, pastor, that's subjective unless you're preaching, yep. and that's obvious it's a good sermon. And then uh, music's too loud or too soft, that's subjective. It's too hot or too cold, that's subjective. But then when you get into a, a campaign, that's not subjective. Yep, that's There's right. an actual number that comes in, and the tough part is it's usually a report card on the pastor. Mm-hmm. So... I do everything I can and we do everything we can to make sure the pastor gets a good report card. Nothing's more leadership intensive than that. And I absolutely love it. So I'm just fascinated by the mobilization of people and resources towards a common goal. And that common goal always results in a better life for people. So I'm just, that's kind of why I'm fascinated about that. I like, I like that piece too the result of it is a better life for people, not only for the leader who's living it out, but for the followers that are involved. So somewhere in this mix, you went from being just a observer of leadership and and you've always had this wiring. I think back to our Cracker Barrel conversations when you had this ability, you and Steve Roach are the two people I've met in this life that have the ability to take complex things and break them down into simple formats better than anybody I know. When did you go from being observer of leadership to someone who's a, I think most in Christian circles would say you're a thought leader. I remember we had a guy coming in to speak and I went, Hey, I got a buddy, Brian Dodd, that's going to come do live blog. And he's like, Oh my gosh, that's great. And you're like, I had no idea the guy knew who I was, right? You've become a thought leader. When did that transition happen? Yeah, that was totally, honestly, that's the power of technology, mm. you know, cause I was in my own little you know, just living my life, you know, and that kind of thing. And then this thing comes out called the internet. And I'll never forget in 2008, our owner comes in and his name was Rick Campbell at the time. And Rick has since passed away, but Rick comes in, he he tells the whole staff, he goes, okay, there's this new thing out called Twitter. So pastors are on it. So I want everybody to set up a Twitter account and everybody tweet something once a day. And we need to approve it before it goes out. Okay. So, I mean, young people, they just be horrified at that. But, you know, it was all brand new back then. And like, you know, and you know me, I'm a good, good soldier. You know, you tell me to walk through the wall, I'll walk through the wall. And, you know, so I started doing that and I just kind of stuck with it. And then it kind of hit me that, okay, this thought I have takes more than 140 characters. So I started doing this little thing called Twit Wall at the time. You could type out a paragraph and it'd put a hot link in there with like mm-hmm. the opening sentence or something. And then I'm like, well, you know, some things I want to do takes more than a paragraph. So I started a blog. And just the the first blog I ever wrote, and here's what I want to tell all leaders. Everybody wants Easter Sunday without Good Friday. Yep. And everybody wants the gain without the pain. Mm-hmm. I wrote my blog. And my a good friend of mine named Chad Auckland subscribed day one. I call it a mercy killing. He got me off zero. <laughs> it was six months till I got my second subscriber. Wow. Six months. Now today I do show up on all those lists and you know that kind of thing and I and I appreciate that. But I never forget that it was six months before I got subscriber number two. 
And, you know, I just love it. Some people play golf, some people garden, some people, you know, work in their wood shop or something like that. I just kind of go home and collect my thoughts and just kind of package them in a way that other people can read them. And it's kind of a way I decompress and download at the end of the day. Um, but just over time, consistency, hopefully excellence mm-hmm. of content. Once again, that's subjective. Right. You know, but consistency, content. And here's another thing I do. I I'm just wired this way. I don't have anything negative to say about anybody. I'm not going to rip into any church. There are certain topics I stay totally away from. There's plenty of people speaking into all those hot-button issues. I don't think I have anything new to add to the conversation. And quite frankly, their comments have not changed anything, so I don't think I'm any better than they are. (laughs) So I don't feel the need to get into that. Do do you feel like some of it, I mean, the success, of course— Great insights. I mean, you'll write things about movies. You'll write things about sermons. You'll write things, of course, live blogging from events. You'll write things about books you've read. Yeah. Do you think a lot of it is just that obedience, long obedience over a period of time that it's almost like compounding interest because you've been so faithful to continue to put it out when most people start and they stop and they start and they get hot and they quit? Do you think that's a big piece of it? Oh, I think that's a huge piece of it. Because when I said it was six months till I got my second subscriber, the average blogger would quit after a month. Yep, that's right. They'd go, well, nothing's coming from this, and, you know, they'd quit. And for the longest time, I mean, if I got 15 readers a day, it was a huge day. Mm. And I remember reading something once that they said, you're not a legitimate blogger until you get 500 readers a day. And I'm sitting there at 15 going, well, that's Mount Everest. I'll never get yeah, there. Yeah. Well, you do get there, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, I mean that. And here's another thing I think was real here. And this is very important for anybody wanting to grow anything. I'll tell you what I think was the number one thing that caused my my influence and my website to grow. Generosity. Mm-hmm. One day you're always looking for content. And I go, you know, I'm sure there's people out there like me thinking, you know, who's some people they can follow on Twitter or something like that. And I did a blog post called 10 Leaders or 10, 10 Christian Leaders Everybody Should Follow on mm-hmm. Twitter. Simple, simple thing. Well, seven of them sent me a thank you note mm-hmm. and five of them retweeted it. So here's what I learned, totally by accident. It was not part of my strategy, totally by accident, that when you point to other people and you say, look what God's doing over there and look how God's using that individual and things like that, especially online, and they they retweeted out, not only do you have influence and you're serving your audience, but you now have influence mm, and you serve their good. audience. That's really and that good. was something I found out just totally by accident. It was not part of the strategy. Um but like my Friday, one of the most popular things I do is top 10 posts yep. I read, read yep. on a Friday. Pastors tell me all the time, I love that because number one, I've got a busy life, busy ministry. It cuts through all the clutter and it says, look, just read this. Yep. And But that's serving the pastors. And it's also saying, look, this is incredible content. God really said something great through this individual. Read this. And I, for me, that type of attitude and that type of approach, that has been the number one thing to grow grow my platform. That's so good, Brian. And, and there'll be a link in the show notes, and I'm sure everybody that listens is Brian Dodd on leadership. You have a pulse of this generation, and you are following, you're at conferences, you're out there. As you watch young leaders in the church and the business world, what are you most excited about? And what are you nervous about most, as you watch it? Yeah, totally most excited thing I got is, number one, they're off the charts, incredibly smart, smartest generation I've ever seen. Uh, how I like how they're leveraging that is it's almost to a person they all want to change the world. Mm-hmm. And here's the thing. When you've got that many people wanting to change the world for good, the world's going to get changed. Mm-hmm. So I'm very optimistic about the future. Okay. So that's the positive side. Because I can tell you what, at that age, I wasn't trying to change the world. No, absolutely. I was, I was trying to find out what I was going to do Friday <laughs> night, you know. So, you know, it's funny. I got a number of millennials that work for me, and uh, I tell them all the time, look, you're light years. I'm about to coach you. I'm about to train you. I'm about to teach you something. But always keep in mind, you're light years yep. of where I was at that age. Um, now, thing, things I'm most concerned about. Two, two, two things. Um, 
this kind of goes to the Christian messaging, and it's not really their fault. It's kind of the messaging in our generation, and now we've raised them up, okay? The elevation of the personal story and personal experience over the glory of God and His Lordship in a lot in a person's life concerns me deeply. God, yes, God meets you where you are, no doubt about it. But your personal journey is not the important thing. You know, how I feel is not the important thing. My happiness is not the important thing. What I think is not the important thing. There is a creator and there is creation. Mm. And regardless of what culture says, regardless of what my experience may be, regardless of how I may be feeling, regardless of what the media says, God and his word has supremacy over all my decision-making and all of my attitudes and, and all of my actions. And I think we've elevated the personal story and the personal agenda and we make God fit into our personal agenda rather than making our personal mm. agenda fit into God. I think that is clearly, mm. for me, number one. On a practical level, number two, now I have a 19-year-old about to turn 20-year-old daughter. Delayed adolescence concerns me greatly, especially with the guys. Because yep. I'll look at some guys, and they'll be like 28, and they'll be dating their girlfriend for like two or three years. And I'm like, dude, what, what are you waiting on? Well, I'm just not in any hurry to get married. Okay. Yep. Well, as a as a father of a girl, I, you know, I'm like, you're going to pay for that on the back end. Right. As a 52 year old, I appreciate that you're discovering yourself, but on the back end, here's what's going to happen: you're going to get married at 32, probably have your first child at 35, probably your last one at 39 or 40, and then you're going to be almost 60 when they're going into college. And then if they're girls, you're going to be paying for weddings at 65 to 70. You're going to pay for it on the back end, mm. big time. And so I, I try to, if they're, if, now nobody's listening to me on this one. So, I mean, let's just be totally honest. <laughs> but people are now, Brian. People, so you yeah, got the platform. Exa- exactly. <laughs> if God has shown you who you're going to marry, go ahead, be a man and marry them mm. and start your life. And number one, you're going to be happier because nothing's better than being married to the Mm. right woman. So, you know, you're going to love your life a lot more and you're going to love it a whole lot more when you get into the 50s like I am in the 60s. So, you know, this is I'll just, you know, here we go. If my daughter's 26 and she's been dating that guy for two years, I'm going to sit him down. I'm going to go, look, is this like going anywhere? (laughs) If not, will you please break up with her so you can free her up to find the guy that God can bring the guy into her life who she will spend the rest of her life with? I appreciate that you're enjoying this non-committal relationship, but if you could free her up, that would make me That's real good. happy as her dad. That's a good word, but I've never <laughs> I've never thought about that before, but that is true. That everything's being everything's being pushed back. Yeah. You know, you now and this, I mean, good good for these kids, but they graduate and they'll spend six months overseas and travel. And I never dream. And I graduated. My parents are like, "Well, here's your bills." And you know, I remember when my son graduated from college, I said, "I want to give you something." He's like, "What?" And I said, "Well, here's the cell phone bill and the <laughs> insurance. So, which one of these you want to get first? Because I've been paying them all these years." Look, it may be totally selfish. It may be okay. I'll I'll admit that. <laughs> I don't want to be sixty five paying for a wedding. Yeah, you're right. You're right. I get it, man. I get it. So yeah. you you spent part of your time in Joy, who you work for now, yeah. was originally come, came out of John Maxwell. Yeah. And came out of the John Maxwell company. During that season that you worked alongside John, what did you learn about leadership from watching him? Oh, I, I love You will meet no bigger fan of John Maxwell than me except maybe Margaret Maxwell. I mean, I, I love John Maxwell. I worked for him for two, from 2002 to 2008. I learned so much. But here's the number one thing I learned from John Maxwell. He's the most generous man I've ever met. Wow. Um, and I tell people all the time, because I've, I've had a number of people talk to me about how much, you know, John, how much money John makes. And here's what I say to anybody who talks about how much somebody else makes just in general. Don't ask how much somebody makes until you first learn how much they give away. Mm. 
Because mm. if you truly believe that you can't outgive God, so let's take John Maxwell. He's, let's say, approximately 70. Okay? Take any Christian who has been extravagantly generous from the time they were 20 years old to the time they were 70 and compound that over time. What does that look like? Mm. That looks like John Maxwell. So when I look at John Maxwell, I mean, he's my spiritual hero. So, But when I look at him, I don't see all the books and the incredible speaking gifts that God has given him and the great you know, leadership and all that. I look at John Maxwell and say, that's what 50 years of generosity looks like. Well, that's good, Brian. That's really and that's the number good. one thing I learned. So, And I love that because you got to see him up close and personal. It's funny. I've asked that question two or three times to different people, and they'll all come out over the course of time of these interviews. Generosity's come up in every one of them. Yeah. That's really interesting that that term has come up in any one of them. Well, let, let's think about on a practical level. You know, you, we mentioned, we talked earlier about a better life. A leader gives somebody a better life. And now we're talking about a leader being generous. You're not a leader if nobody's following you. Mm-hmm. So who's... Who are you going to follow? Are you going to follow somebody that's going to give you a better life or a not better life? Are you going to follow somebody that's generous or somebody that's stingy? And the simple reality is by being generous, by focusing on giving people a better life, that just expands your influence and impact in a person's life. Because otherwise, why would seriously, why would anybody follow somebody if they're not that person? Yeah, you're right. You are exactly right. When you look back, and I, and I think we were both just crazy about the enjoy life club tapes. Yeah. In fact, I've got a, um, when my parents passed away last year, I went through their house and I found an old Walkman. I got to get batteries for it. Cause I've still got cassettes that I haven't burned into CDs or, or MP3s. Now, what was your favorite John Maxwell tape thought from back in the day that you go, this was a game changer. When I heard this, this was a game changer. Yeah, for me. There were two. One was I'm 50 and reflecting. Hmm. So he turned 50, and he was doing 10 life lessons that he learned at 50. So that was a big one. Another one was there was a church that had a sexual molestation issue, and it was called How to Regain Lost Momentum. Oh, that's good. And he sat down with that pastor. It was a pastor in San Diego. He sat down with him at a restaurant and interviewed him and just took notes on how, you know, obviously when the event happened, it dipped, but now they were coming back. Mm. And he talked about that entire process. So those two were the ones. I mean, I still remember them. Like the number one thing you got to do to gain regain lost momentum is address the issue. Mm. Number two is you've got to correct the problem. Number three, you got you know because they they put in like monitors. Yeah, video monitors. This is the nineties. Video monitors. So that's big back then. You know, number number three is give people security. Wow. Continually communicate. I can still rattle them off. That's un- rattle them off today. It, 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 you know, nowadays we have podcasts. Good night. Driving in here to meet today, I had already listened to three different podcasts this morning. So we've got these things. We've got the ability to scroll through this incredible index of Game Changer podcast, the Kerry Newhoff podcast, the Dose of Leadership, just on and on and on. There's so many entree leadership. There's so many great podcasts. Yeah. Back then, you didn't have all that. You had two things. You had the Enjoy Life Club tape, and you had Defining Moments from Willow Creek. There's, that was it. That was it. And I mean, they and they fed you when you were starving. I remember, for me, early on uh, as a youth pastor, I remember hearing him talk about his first church in Hillham, Indiana, and he talked about Claude. Oh, yeah, painting the fence with Claude. Oh. Yeah, he'd have a meet, the meeting before the meeting. The you meeting meet with, before the meeting. You meet with Claude. Get Claude's approval and then let Claude sell it. Changed my leadership life. Yeah. Because I knew going into this first church, those were key relationships. I would have not, I knew I had to go build relationships with kids. Yeah. I would have never thought the success of the student ministry may hinge on somebody doesn't have a kid in the student ministry, but they're bought into me. Well, here's the big deal. You want to talk about the influence a person has. Our entire generation, when it came time to leading our organizations and leading our churches, it was a standard leadership phrase we would all use. Who's the Claude? That's it. I mean, that's so good. I mean, John literally created language that an entire generation of Christian leaders used. Just shared it with a new principal last week who's taken a high school here in our community. And I said, you better go in and find out who the Claudes are. Yeah. And I told told them the story. And they'd never, of course, they'd never heard it before. But that's how, that's the power. 
I mean, that is the power of words and that power. So you've gone, Brian, from writing blogs, which are phenomenal and breaking down things, to now you've written two books. Yeah. And I know Apex Leaders now been out for a little while, and I'm sure you'll have a, a new one in the works soon. As you have gone into writing books, was that just a personal challenge that you had that you're like, all right, I need to write a book? Or is it something that you got approached by a lot of people going, Brian, put this in the form of a book? How did all that come about? The first book I wrote, which was 10 Indispensable Practices of the Two-Minute Leader. I mean, so my good. first book, I love that book. You know, it's my first one. I, this sounds, I guess this got, okay, we'll go back to high school now. Just needing validation. I just wanted my name on something. <laughs> I mean, I, I just, okay, I just feel too comfortable that I'm just sharing just all my insecurities. But I just wanted my name on something. You know, I just wanted to put my stake in the ground on this planet. Mm. You know, and the book did that. You know, back, it was a big deal. That was before self-publishing. Yeah. So, I mean, somebody had to actually believe in you, invest in you, and you threw the stake in the ground, and I got a book, you know. Mm. So after that, um, I don't think you should ever, there are a handful of people that are professional writers that, okay, you've got to churn it out every year. Okay. Um, I'm not that, I mean, books is my nighttime job, you know? Um, I don't think you should write a book unless you have to write a book that there's just a message in you that you've got to get out. Now that's tough for pastors because you can get that message out every seven days. You know, but for somebody like me that doesn't have that weekly audience, um, but it reached a point that I discovered something through my blog that I thought was important enough that it had to get out. And so that's what generated the content for Timeless, which is, you know, 10 enduring practices of apex leaders. So tell me the the term apex leader. It's really something you've coined Explain to everybody what apex leader means. And I like this is great. All right. So just, I mean, I'm just, once again, going to be totally transparent. <laughs> so now this is where the intellect of of the podcast will diminish slightly. <laughs> listen, okay. listen, we're going to give them a break because they're <laughs> listening. So yeah. the intellect, I'm not, I'm a little questioning right. anyways. So I'm watching Monday Night Raw. There we go. And Randy Orton's coming down the platform, <laughs> and they says, Here's This is how- not Christian programming, by exactly. the way. Exactly. Right. We're taking this a is, detour, yeah. taking a detour. Uh, and, you know, Jim Ross is like, Here comes Randy Orton, the apex predator. So I'm just sitting there watching, you know, and I'm like, Okay, apex predator. Okay, well, the reason he's the apex predator is like Shark Week, you know, it's the top of the food chain. And I'm like, Okay, well, natural progression, apex leaders. Mm who are the leaders that are at the top of the chain, the top of their organizations, the one with the most influence? It could be in athletics. It could be business. It could be Christianity, you know, education, various spheres of influence, technology. But there's a group of apex leaders. And then I started really diving into it. And so through my blog, I wrote over 180 profiles of apex leaders. Now, they could be apex leaders for an extended period of time, like let's say LeBron James, Mm -hmm. or it could be they were an apex leader for like one year, Derrick Rose, Mm -hmm. when he just sprouted up, became MVP, then got injured and never returned to that, okay? But I did over 180 profiles of apex leaders. Then one day, I'm like, okay, I wonder if there's common traits they all have. I literally sat down with an Excel spreadsheet, went through all 185 blog posts and then identified what they did that made them apex leaders. Identified over 309 traits. And then I picked the 10 most common. Mm. And so that's the 10 individual chapters, you know, the 10 enduring practices of apex leaders. Now, the reason it's called timeless and the reason the word enduring is in there is obviously I'm a Christian first and foremost. That's my fundamental identity. So each of those practices uh, in the book, I build a biblical framework for the practice, but also have modern day examples. So for instance, here's what makes the book unique. Chapter one, Apex Leaders Build Great Teams. Okay. What other book can you read about the Trinity, which is the greatest team, if you want to use that term, the greatest team, where else can you get the Trinity and Nick Saban in the exact same (laughs) chapter? (laughs) 
Definitely nowhere. nowhere else but your book. That's the beauty of it. Yeah. And now that Auburn fans know that, they're not going to read the first chapter. They'll just pull that out and they'll move on. They'll go to Terracy, man. They'll go to number two. They'll go so. to number two. So yeah. I want to dive into a few of these because they're really fascinating. And, and, I, and I get them. You know, uh, I've been here at North Star now 20-plus years. Um, I've seen guys come. I've seen guys go. I'm an observer, like you, of great leaders. I love looking out at great leaders. And one of your apex principles was apex leaders continually improve. So let's talk about that. We always announce the arrival, but we don't always see after we know who they are, they're always in a state of getting better. Explain a little bit about that and what that comes from. Apex leaders intuitively know, okay, let's take Mount Everest. Interesting thing about Mount Everest, there's no condos on top of Mount Mm. Everest. Mm. Okay? When you climb Mount Everest, you throw down your stake, but then there's another mountain to climb. Okay? Apex leaders know that leadership is an oval track. Mm. That's good. And that, you know, what got you to today, what made you successful today will not make you successful tomorrow. Uh, life is just changing too fast. Technology changes fast. Just things in this world, the speed of information, things that work today, the core values of it will still remain the same, but the expression of that is going to change tomorrow. So you know you need to always be, excuse me, you need to always be working on your skills, your talents, your abilities, and improving, working, you know, various things in your life. At the time of this recording, Avengers Infinity War just came mm-hmm. out. Have you seen it? I've not seen it. All right, it. so I'm going to spoil a little of it for you. In the opening scene, Hulk fights Thanos. Thanos dispatches him very violently and very quickly. Okay? Here's the leadership principle of that. Every leader at some point will run into somebody bigger, faster, and stronger mm. than they are. At some point, you will always there will always be. I'll never forget Bill Bradley, the U.S. senator, but also a great basketball player earlier in his life. Um, in the early '60s, he was a high school basketball legend. And when you're looking at the greatest high school players ever, I mean, you're talking Bill Bradley, Oscar Robinson, Lou Alcindor, LeBron James, Moses Malone. I mean, mm-hmm. those are the ones who are the best of the best of all time in high school. When he was in high school, he outworked everybody, and people would ask him why. And he says, there will come a day when you will always meet somebody who's as skilled and talented as you are. And if they're working today and they're improving today, the day you will meet them is the day you will lose. Mm, That's good, boy. And, And so the reality is leaders intuitively know that they always have to be getting better. Now, I'll say this on a on a on a broader level for the Christian audience to reel them back in after yeah. the WWE reference. <laughs> God has called every Christian, whether you're a leader or not, but if you're a Christian, I would make the argument you are a leader. Mm-hmm. Just I totally agree. Okay. So God has called every Christian to accomplish something significant for him in their life. So by definition, that is a God-sized dream and a God-sized task and assignment. In your human ability, you cannot accomplish it. So how do you fill that gap? You fill that gap through two ways. Number one, continually improving, continually maturing, continual sanctification of the discipleship process, getting smarter, getting better, things of that nature. The other part is just to lean into God and say, God, I'm giving you everything I can. If you can't come, if you don't come through, this is not going to happen. And every leader at some point in their life is driven to a point that if God doesn't come through, it's not going to happen. That's right. So those are the reasons great leaders always focus on continual improvement. And and it takes extra work because I think all of us, the oval track is, is certainly correct because all of us want a sign at the end of it that goes, you're complete and you're finished. And that day does come for a leader and that day for that leaders probably when they go home to be with the Lord. Right. That's right? the that's the finish line. That's the finish line. And yeah. Until then, and we talked a little bit about this, Brian, with just some stuff going on in the news. A lot of leaders don't finish well. A lot of leaders limp to the finish line and don't continually improve. I, I think Ike, a mutual friend of ours, Ike Reichard, um, says, you know, so many times the the pioneers of the of one generation become the critics. 
of the next generation and they right. don't adapt with time and they don't continually improve. What happens when a leader doesn't improve? I'm going to give two examples and one's going to be professional. One's going to be your family. Okay. Um, so if a leader does not improve, once again, Hulk and Thanos, you're eventually going to be replaced by somebody bigger, stronger, and faster. Uh, you're eventually going to become outdated. The challenge for all leaders, I mean, I'm 52, I'm having to do it. You know, you've got to reinvent and reinvest. And, you know, you've got to do continual ongoing training. You've got to look at things different ways. I think leaders always grow. On my personal growth side, I try to grow in three areas, character, competence, and creativity. Those are the three areas I personally try to grow in. Um, So let's just do competence, you know. Uh, The way I do competence, I read books. I try to read two or three books a month. Um, I, I'll go to conferences. I listen to podcasts. I talk to people smarter than me. One of the interesting thing is I, because I work with Enjoy Stewardship and do capital campaigns, depending on what stats you read, let's say 16% of churches are growing, mm-hmm. 84% plateaued or declining. So there's probably a plus or minus ratio, error ratio in there, but let's just start there. The interesting thing for me and my job is I only work with the 16%. percent hmm uh, there are churches that are plateaued or declining, and the bank will make them do a debt retirement campaign. So there are there is that group. But every day I talk to the 16%, and I'm fascinated by why they're the 16%. Mm. So everyone I talk to, I always ask them at some point. I'll say, you know, you probably read the same stats I do. Give or take, only 16% of churches are growing. You're one of them. I know it's the goodness of God, but what are y'all doing that's making you one of the 16%? Well, that's good. And I love the answers that they give. Mm. So, you know, obviously that that helps me improve. Um, here's another thing I think why, why, what happens if you don't um, improve. There's a great book out by Jonathan Abrams called Boys to Men. And what he does in that book is he chronicled every high school basketball player that went directly to the pros. So Moses Malone, Daryl Dawkins, and Bill Willoughby in the 70s, all the way up to LeBron James and everybody in between. And basically, the ones that made it, here, here are the two reasons they made it. When you really break down, and there's nuances but on each individual story, but here's the two things. Number one, hard work. Hard work works. The ones that worked beyond how hard they thought they could work, they made it. The other two, the other reason, this is what's interesting. They didn't confuse the finish line with the starting line. They didn't think that now that they'd been drafted, they made it. The ones that made it thought, now that I've been drafted, it's time to get the work. That's good. And it's funny. After reading that, every NFL and NBA draft I watch on television, when they announce their name and they come out, if they're crying or if they're overly celebrating, I'm like, that one's in trouble. Mm. The ones that come out with their game face on and they're grateful and they're happy for their family and all that, but they come out with their game face on and now it's time to get to work. Those are the ones that are going to make it. That that is a great that is a great way to look at that. I have to go back and watch the draft now. Yeah, you know, the Falcons just came out with the draft. I have to go back and watch and see and how like, do these guys look. How do they look? I didn't pay attention. That's yeah. good, man. I love that. One of the other apex leader points was apex leaders form strong relationships, and I love how you added very strong. Yeah. Talk to me a little bit about that. Yeah, this is the chapter I really talked a lot about family. Mm. You know, the most important. Uh, the most important person you're ever going to lead yourself. That's right. Number two is going to be, for me personally, as a husband and a father. It's your family. Um, I would always say this. Crawford Loritz has one of my favorite statements. You know, he told our church once. He goes, you know, I love all of y'all, and, you know, I'm going to do everything I can for you, but I just want to let everybody know, Karen's the one that's going to be pulling up my depends one day, not (laughs) y'all. And that was, and everybody was like, well, okay, I get that, you know. So here's the thing. Um, the I prioritize, and so do you. Actually, you taught me a lot because I remember, you know, we would talk, and i say, well, do you want to do breakfast on Friday? And you're like, I, I don't do anything on Friday. Mm. 
And I'm like, oh, okay, well, I've never heard that before, but okay, I get it. And I remember you telling me once, because we were getting in a season, North Star was rolling. Yeah. And we were like, okay, we need to do this, we need to do this. And you told me, you go, Brian, I'm not going to lose my family over this thing. Mm. And that stuck with me. Mm. And so as things have happened, Sonia and Anna, those are the two most important relationships I have. So when you say, okay, well, let's talk about what happens if you don't form strong relationships? Well, let's talk about at work. Here's what's going to happen. If you continually as a leader do not, if you expect your people to serve you and you don't serve them, you're not going to have a strong relationship. And here's what's going to wind up happening. They're going to wait till they have options and a better option comes along. Or B, they're going to pitch a tent and wait for you to fail. And when you need your team around you, to lift you up and hold you up during those difficult times, they will not be there and your career will collapse. Mm. Okay. So that's on the professional side, on the personal side. So let's say I did not form strong relationships with Sonia and our marriage fell apart today. Let me tell you what that would look like. I would be in a one bedroom apartment that probably has a third of it filled with furniture my daughter would lose all confidence in me. She would then marry a just she'd take some counterfeit love just to fill that empty void in her life. That marriage may or may not work. And if it doesn't work, my grandkids will grow up in a dysfunctional home and potentially in a life of poverty. And it'll put this generational negative spin on what happens if I don't form strong relationships today. Is that a choice? Is 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 forming strong relationships something anybody can do? Anybody can do it. It is a choice. Now, here's, here's the way you've got to mentally think. Everything in your organization depreciates. This palatial studio we're in, the technology will one day be outdated. The walls will have, the paint will have to be replaced. The walls will have to be replaced. Uh, things break down. Everything in your organization depreciates except one thing, people. Mm. People are the only appreciable asset any organization has. So therefore, smart organizations, whether you're coaching a team, whether you're running a business, whether you're in education, whether you're in Christian work, the organizations that are the most lasting and the most successful prioritize people development more than anything. That's so good. That is so good. And it's what gets lauded the least, but when it's there, everybody applauds it the most because yeah. the, the there's high customer status or high retention with people that work there. Customers are happy because the employees are happier or people that you work with are happier because your family's happy. It makes a huge difference. Yeah. There, nobody gets an award if you walk by your office and go, hey, I know last week we were talking about your son getting braces. How's he doing? Everything going well? Oh, yeah, everything's great. Thank you. And you just go about your day. But those type of small things where you care about people as people and their lives matter to you, those things compound over time to build strong relationships. Mm. You know, and, and you, you even go, well, I mean, that's for... That's a, more of a soft skill, and I it may be a soft skill, but great teams are led by people who lead that way. I mean, Dabo is the perfect example of hot in the coaching world right now. Who we were talking before we went on the air, he gets that, yeah. And those relationships with his players and with his coaches they matter. All right. Let me tell you how I do it. Okay, I work remotely. Okay, so my team is at different parts of the southeast. Okay. I actually have it because I, I can get into my work and put mm -hmm. my head down and start grinding, okay? Mm -hmm. I actually have it on my calendar every other day to connect with my team. Wow. I calendar it. Just makes you think about it. Yeah. And look, it's not that I don't care about them or I wouldn't have forgotten about them in the first place. The pr That's a tool that helps me because I can get so, you know— Look, here's the thing. Leaders who are listening to this podcast, they're high achievers. They're production-minded. Yep. They get things done. So what happens is the focus on the production of the task, if you're not careful, can override your care for the people. And I wish that I had this natural bent. But, yeah, there are times I calendar it. And 
And yeah, but it's a priority to me. That's why I calendar it. Well, and we know what gets calendared gets done. Yeah. And I was meeting with a young leader the other day. I used to be a young leader. That's really sad. <laughs> I'm not in that category anymore. But anyways, I was meeting with a young leader the other day, and I said, man, you you have to intentionally put it on your calendar, family time. Mm-hmm. You, you've got to. And that way, when somebody calls, because there's always an emergency, there's always a crisis, there's always something... And if it's not calendared, it probably isn't going to get done. And when I, I remember in those early years, uh, Friday, it just had family. And it had family from 7 to 4. It was an day. We would go out because I had something on Friday night. I had something on Saturday, a wedding on Saturday, church on Sunday. And then the work week starts again on Monday. Friday was it. Yeah. And, man, I am so thankful that somebody along the way, I don't remember who it was, talked to me about it and that intentionality. I love the follow-up that you're talking about with your team that you put in your calendar. That is really good. Third thing, one of the other three of the 10, we'll, we'll land on this one. We'll get all of them. But you said apex leaders lead by example. Why do you find these people at the top of their game that are making a mark? They're leading. They understand what they do is as important or more important than what they say. Why would that be? Yeah, uh, what gets rewarded what is what gets repeated, number one. So that's an action. But here's the thing. Leadership is a picture of the desired destination at which others should wish to arrive. Mm. I originally heard Crawford Loretz once again say that. But people are a, a picture of the desired destination at which others should wish to arrive. Put another way, people will do what people see, mm. what gets modeled for them. Um, I'll never forget, and I'm going to talk about you, uh, for just a second. Uh, my daughter, Anna, uh, leads worship here mm. for the listeners yep. periodically and uh, definitely plays other roles yep. at the church all the time. But um, we came to a service where her and Seth were leading the service. And so you get up and you're closing out the service and you're kind of giving everybody their charge for the week and that kind of thing. And you go, you know, Y'all are just the nicest people in the world. So I'm driving home and I'm talking to Sonia and I go, you know, Mike said, North Star, they're just the nicest people in the world. I said, well, that makes total sense. Mike's the nicest person Mm. in the world. The people had become a picture of the leader. Mm. You cannot escape that fact. Mm. You know, you, I, I can tell anything about a staff. I can tell anything about the people by looking at the leader. Conversely, if I if I meet with the staff or the people first, I already know the leader because mm. people are always a picture of the leader. That's good. When you think about your legacy, and you think about Brian, you, you've written two great books. You're a phenomenal dad. You're a phenomenal husband. You your blog is a is a must read in our world. You you've made a mark. It, as you get on down the road 20, 30 years from now, and you're looking back in that rearview mirror, and as we talked about earlier, beginning to connect those dots yeah. in the rearview mirror, what do you want people to say about Brian Dodd? On my tombstone, if it says three things, I'll be happy. Brian loved Jesus. Brian loved his family. Brian loved pastors. If it says those three things, I will consider it a, a, a life well lived. Well, Brian, you are on the way. You are, you love Jesus. You love your family. You love pastors. And if you keep doing what you've done for these years, for those next years, you went way past that 20 feet. You've exceeded what you could have been and gone even a great a great distance more. So thanks for the honor of getting to sit down today, man. It has been a blast. Once again. I just need to go to Alaska, and the bucket list is complete. (laughs) So this in Alaska, halfway done. I love it. I love it. I hope you enjoyed my time with Brian. I have three guys that are go-tos for me. One is a gentleman you'll be introduced to in a later uh, edition that you've heard his name mentioned on here a lot. His name's Ira Blumenthal. Ira is just an amazing leader in so many aspects. Brian Dodd is one of my go-tos. When I need a good fill-up, when I need a good recharge the battery lunch, I will call Brian and I will 
take care of picking up his lunch, to sit down and find out what he's learning, find out who he's learning from. Brian is a voracious reader and then just has the ability to break down things simply and help you remember them. Thank you, Jesus, for connecting my life with Brian Dodd. If you've not read his books, you need to go pick them up. Apex Leaders is a fabulous book. He is an incredible writer, but even more than that, he's just an incredible person. Make sure and follow him at Brian Dodd on Leadership or on Twitter at Brian K. Dodd. Uh, All the show notes have all the links to his information, but we are so thankful for our time today with Brian. I know this, I'm a better person for spending the time that we've gotten to spend with Brian. Well, in episode 47, we get to sit down with another sharp leader, Darlene Santor. You may know her online as Coach Dar. She has worked as a mental coach in the NBA and with some great athletes. She has overcome some amazing adversities in her life to get her where she is today. So if you enjoy this podcast, which I hear from so many of you, take time to go to iTunes and write a review and to rate the podcast. It helps others, helps it find its way in its inbox for others, and they can enjoy alongside you. I'm sure enjoying the journey. I hope you are. And until we meet again next time, I hope you go out and be the leader that God created you to be. Thank you for listening to the Lynch with a Leader podcast with your host, Mike Lynch. If you enjoyed this episode, you can help more people hear it by subscribing and leaving a review wherever you may be listening. For full episode notes and more spiritual leadership resources, visit MikeLynch.com.